Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. President Putin is not the force he used to be. He is now a man in a cage that he built himself. He's isolated. His army is exhausted. He has suffered significant losses. The reputation of this great army of Russia has been trashed. Uh, and, and he has now got to live with the consequences, not only uh, of what he's doing to Ukraine, but he's also got to live with the consequences of what he's done to his own army. That is Ben Wallace, not just anybody, the British defense minister. Listen, uh, I hope he's right. But Trey Yingst is here and give us a sense of what was happening on the ground. He just got back. I did not know we gave you a clothing budget because all you need is all you need is a collared shirt, right? A jean shirt and jeans, but you do have a clothing budget. Look at you in a suit there. I have a tie. I wear a tie like two times a year when I'm here. <laughs> Looks see great. You guys. And we're on Fox Nation. If you want to check him out, Trey, as I mentioned before, you do an incredible job. But I want to get your sense about what Ben Wallace said. Do you get the sense in your reporting that the Russians are exhausted? They are they are unorganized. And I wouldn't know how you know directly of Vladimir Putin's isolated, but we're getting that from many different sources now. Look, I think what we saw on the ground was early on this narrative that the Russians might be able to take Ukrainian cities like Kiev and Kharkiv, the second largest city there, in a matter of days. And they were stopped nearly immediately across this country. And they have made some territorial gains, but it's nothing like what analysts around the world thought they would early on. So – when you see these reports of a demoralized army, it makes sense. It makes sense because it was also freezing cold there, and it's still quite cold. So you have to think about it. You've got a bunch of 18- and 19-year-old Russian soldiers with no combat experience sitting in tanks in below freezing temperatures with rations they've been given by the military, and they're watching their fellow soldiers get hit with anti-tank missiles and stingers from the ground to the air. It makes sense. How about the months they had leading up to that where they were just sitting in their vehicles? And I thought to myself, I remember the talk before the, Pers- before the Iraq war. We we're in Kuwait. Kind of pretty good. You know, it's in the middle of the moon, but it's the desert. So you had control of the accommodation. There were fans. There was food. They had, they were, had intramural sports. And that was tough, waiting, whining. But I go, what if you just sat in a tank all day on the edge and did not know the reports early on? And I have not seen them. Uh, kicked out of the ballpark was that they didn't know where they were going. They had no idea what the mission was. I imagine that's true because they didn't want it to get leaked out to the public or the Ukrainians. So I'm sure the decision ultimately to launch this full-scale invasion was held, I imagine, quite tight with just President Putin, maybe his top one or two generals. But no one else would know about this because they didn't want Ukraine to have a heads up of when this would start. I think the other interesting thing to think about is that these soldiers – wouldn't have had their phones or communication equipment. So they can't call home to their girlfriends or their moms. And so you think this is months ago, and now they're fighting an active conflict where they're clearly being used as cannon fodder. So the other thing I heard is they have no way of communicating. So their cell system doesn't exist and that the Ukrainians wiped out their prefixes, those three digits numbers. So they had to use the Ukrainian cell system and is why we get all these transmissions. Front page of the New York Times the other day, the audio version would just have – 
hours of just the back and forth and the panic and lack of communication amongst the Russian fighters. Yeah, and it's also interesting to look at the amount of information we're getting out because there are certain areas where journalists just aren't operating inside Ukraine. And you have this situation where there are cities with tens of thousands of people that have been targeted by Russian forces in parts destroyed. And we don't know how extensive the damage is. We don't know how the soldiers are that were operating there, if they're alive or not. And there is a fog of this war. So your sense, because I saw you had a few presses with uh, President Zelensky. Tell me the guy you thought he was. Uh, maybe you had some pre- uh, you had did a profile of him or you had a sense of who he was. And tell me who he's been and what you've noticed. I talked to President Zelensky just before the war started in the southern city of Kherson, a region in the south that's now controlled by the Russians. Where he and I were speaking then is now controlled by Russian forces. I also asked him a couple questions inside of a bunker where he was waiting. And to get there, it was such a juxtaposition of where we had seen him before. Before he was out in the open and he was answering questions at this drill for the Ukrainian National Guard. And then – When this group of journalists and I went to meet him in the middle of the war, we were told to come to a checkpoint, and we got to that checkpoint, and we got out of our cars, and these black vans pulled up. You couldn't see inside the the windows, and we were ushered into these vans and asking where we're going, and they said, you'll see when we get there, and we get to this location, and it's where Zelensky is waiting out throughout this war, and we walk in. There's piles of landmines prepared to get put out if Russian forces make it into the city, sandbags over the windows, and we walk through the dark corridors of this location and ultimately meet with Zelensky then. And when I first saw him, I was really pressing him on the U.S. intelligence and his thoughts on what was going to take place because he was downplaying the possibility of a full-scale invasion. And I said, well, what about this intelligence? And really pressing him. But then when I saw him there, this was a man who pledged to stay and fight. Despite the fact his advisors told him, you may be targeted and killed. The city could be surrounded and you may be trapped and dragged through the streets. And he stayed. And on a very basic human level, you have to have some respect for that. He did sense that the world was watching and he he met the moment in every way. And I think it's been brilliant addressing all these parliaments from Canada to Israel to Italy to the U.S. to uh, to the U.K., uh, Australia yesterday, and um, who else did he just address again? Asking for help, telling everyone, but tapping into their own history to see their own history in what they're doing in the Ukraine. And I believe that he has got public sentiment in America anyway, and from what I've seen on British TV, by talking past the parliament to the people. People like this guy. The interesting part about Zelensky is he was a comedian and an actor, and he did all these sketches in Ukraine. He's very well known there even before he ran for office. But he's a guy who knows people and he knows how to talk to people and how to communicate a message. And so he understood the role that he needed to play here as a strong leader. And he's been doing that. And he has a lot of support. We talk to Ukrainians all the time and they are happy with how he's responded. What about Poroshenko and the Klitschko, separate parties? They don't Mm. really talk, I understand, correct? Uh, it depends on the day and depends on the issue, but you're you're correct. I talked to Poroshenko in Irpin in the middle of the war, and he had a lot of very strong words to say about President Putin of Russia. And we could do a whole show on his previous conversations and relations with the Russians. But to not get into that now, Poroshenko is certainly wants to show the world that he is staying and that while he is not currently serving in office, 
he plays a role in the society. Yeah, I'm going to be talking to him for my Saturday show, which airs at 8 and 11, called One Nation. I'm going to be talking to him shortly uh, from the battlefield. So it's going to be interesting to talk to That's him. That's going to be a really interesting conversation because this is a guy who understands what's going on, and he still has all of those communications. So he's going to be able to give you the latest, really, of what it's happening on the ground with the Ukrainian forces. All right, when we come back, I'd love to you tell us, uh, everybody, to tell us how Benjamin Hall's doing, what Pierre, you were at Pierre's funeral, and Sasha, and how they, uh, what was that day like, uh, and how Clarissa Ward and others in other networks really helped us out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we were at Pierre's funeral earlier in the week, and uh, Sasha, also our fixer who lost her life in this, an incredible journalist, and Benjamin Hall is, is certainly fighting, and he's doing well. All right, great. Uh, details on that. Trey Yingst in studio. Uh, this is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back, everybody. Trey Yingst is here, fresh off... uh his stint in uh, side Ukraine in a war that's still uh, very, very hot right now. So the big story, I think, in the world, I, uh, just by judging not only because I'm up at some ungodly hours, I'm watching Sky and BBC a lot. And uh, and, the, and what happened with uh, Benjamin Hall, what happened with Sasha, and what happened with Pierre. What could you tell us about that day? Look, I just say this is a group of journalists, fine journalists, who wanted to show the world what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. And ultimately, they took fire as they were trying to report on the outskirts of Kiev, and two of our colleagues lost their lives, Sasha and Pierre. Pierre is the finest photojournalist I've ever worked with. He loves life. He loved this job, and it's hard to even talk about him in the past tense now because he was really a friend. He was someone that I reported with in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Qatar, and most recently in Ukraine, and he was someone who could make even the most dangerous interview subjects laugh and smile because he knew how to make people feel comfortable from behind the camera. Would you say fearless? Fearless, absolutely. One of the bravest people that I knew because he understood that someone has to go out there and get the story. If we're not there to tell the world what's happening to the Ukrainian people, who will? And Sasha, our fixer and producer on the ground, contracted by Fox to work with us, 24 years old and wanted so badly to show the world what was happening on the ground in Ukraine – Benjamin Hall, his work is incredible all around the world, our State Department correspondent. But he is a man with previous war zone experience all around the world. His reporting in Syria before he even started at Fox was the gold standard. And so these were a group of journalists who were trying to get the truth out to the world when they took this incoming fire. Benjamin's in good spirits. I've talked to him and he is healing. He's getting better. And I know that we will see him back on air eventually doing his job and showing the world what's happening. You said your conversation was the same Ben. The same Ben. He is himself. And I know he's a strong guy. He has a huge support system, not only from his family, but also his Fox family. And I know that he's going to get better and ultimately 
get back to telling stories. He's in Texas. He's in Texas, yeah. So he's going to spend most of his rehab there? Yep. That's okay. from, yeah, from what I understand. Now, do you think personally that could have been you? Of course. I mean, I've thought about that every day since this happened. That was my crew. It was his crew. And nearly, actually not nearly every single shot that you see of me in the field in Ukraine was shot by Pierre. And the majority of them were produced and fixed by Sasha. We saw a lot of your stills uh, out there. Now, I understand that Clarissa Ward, who's some that does incredible work like you do, especially in Afghanistan like you were, um, she helped, right? Yeah, I'm grateful for Clarissa and her team. CNN. Helped the night that this happened. Journalists from across the board were so kind to us when this happened, and they offered resources and time and sometimes just an ear to listen to when I had to run ideas of, okay, how can we search for our colleagues? And you couldn't find them. No, we, we couldn't. And I'm grateful to her. I'm, I'm grateful to everyone who stepped up and who were willing to give up what they had to help our team and to help Fox. How did you eventually find, um, find out that Benjamin was in life? Uh, ultimately, we got word that he was in a hospital and that he was being treated. He was seriously injured, but uh, he was alive, and that was the most important thing to us. How did you find out about the attack? Uh, ultimately, they didn't come back, and so we knew so, something had gone wrong. Something went wrong. And how hard was this with no Americans to be able to talk to and confer to, no commanding officer to – I mean, were you working with the Ukrainians? Were they looking out for you? I, I won't go too much into the details, but I will say that our colleague Jennifer Griffin – deserves the highest praise because she is an operator and she is someone who was helping a lot behind the scenes to make sure that our colleagues got to safety. And do, would you say the State Department and Pentagon helped? That would be a better question for her. Okay. Um, but they ended up getting out of there. Ultimately, they challenge. got out and, and he was able to get the top level of care. And Fox was committed to making sure he got to safety and that he got the best care possible. And they were operating what often seemed like in a very dangerous environment with a lot of questions up in the air, they were operating with very specific plans to make sure that he was safe and to make sure that he got out. We've been out for how many, a week now? A couple of weeks, yeah, two weeks. Where do you think this ba- – does this feel like separate wars to you? you got the battle of the capital, the battle in the south, the battle in the – which will soon be the uh, – the, of the Odessa area, which mm-hmm. is soon the Mikhailiv yeah, there's a uh, lot of different are. front lines. So where, how, do you, how would you characterize it from how you left it, from what you know? Look, right now it seems like the Russian forces are pulling back from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. It doesn't mean that they're done. I don't think they're just going to give up the land that they captured around the Ukrainian capital. But they're getting hit hard, and there is no environment where it objectively makes sense from a military perspective to bring forces into a city that is fortified and prepared for war. They've already gotten hit hard by the Ukrainian forces, and they would get hit even harder if they tried to enter once again the capital of Kiev. There will likely be more of a focus in the east, but you have to look at the actions on the ground because so often the Russians say they are going to do one thing, and then they do something completely different. It's part of this information war that's ongoing. How do you think it's going from the Ukrainian perspective? I think that they are continuing to call for more support and more weapons, There is a real sense on the ground from people that we talk to. They will stay and fight. And it's why you see everyone from average civilians that you meet on the street who own a coffee shop to the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, saying that they need support and they are going to stay and push back this offense. So I'm not going to play it now because you have to run to another interview. But Jennifer Griffin essentially said this, and she wouldn't have asked the question if she didn't get reports knowing her. It seems like the the weapons and and the supplies are slowing down. And what is the problem? And we know we're writing the checks. We know the money's getting increasing. We know the communication with our president and their president just was on Wednesday for over an hour. 
Have you heard that? And what could be the reasons for that? There could be some logistical reasons related to this, but we're talking about billions of dollars worth of equipment, and it's an important question. This is about transparency, and it's about taxpayer dollars, where they're going, and it's ultimately about what type of support the Ukrainian people and military are receiving in real time. It's an important question to ask, and it has nothing to do with politics. It's not about left or right, Republican or Democrat. It's about the American support for Ukraine as the country is being invaded, as their sovereignty is being violated by are the Are you heartened by the fact that the Americans are behind this effort? I think that the world should respect human rights. I have very few opinions, especially publicly as a journalist, but I think that human rights need to be respected. Women and children should never be targeted. And so when that is happening, there is a sense that as journalists, we need to be there to shine light on this issue. And ultimately, there's a real understanding that if these people do not receive support from the international community, thousands, if not tens of thousands more will die. Absolutely. And he said the war is coming to you if you guys just continue to ignore this. Trey, great to see you. Great work. And I look forward to seeing you in the halls in a calm environment for a while so you can regroup. Would you go back? Of course. All right. Trey Yanks, thanks so much. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.